Today's program is about the flood, part two. Hello my radio friends, it's good to have your company again. God bless you for tuning in and being part of the program today. It is always my hope that you are well and that you have come to realise that God loves you very much. Probably some of you had some questions about the previous program about what is known as Noah's Flood. I too have questions, but not doubts. You see, I am convinced that the Bible is the Word of God and that we should try to understand the world about us from the viewpoint of the Bible rather than the other way round. In some subjects, the Bible gives only basic information and we must use this as a platform to understanding what has, what is, and what will happen. This is especially true when it comes to understanding origins and things to do with geology, paleontology and geomorphology, that is, the makeup of the Earth's surface, the study of fossils and the study of the shaping of the Earth's surface. In our previous program, we were considering the evidences that support the Bible's record of the great worldwide flood. By means of revision, those evidences fall, fall into four main categories. Firstly, there is what the oldest ever written record says about the flood. The Bible is the oldest document, and it says the flood was a fact. It gives details of the reason for the flood, how it happened, details of the preservation of a remnant of humanity and the surface living animals and creatures. It gives details of times and the ark that was built to be the means of preserving life. If the flood was only a localised flood, there would have been no need for an ark. The people and animals could have moved elsewhere if the flood was local. The second line of evidence was that both Jesus and the Apostle Peter believed and spoke about the flood as a fact. The third line of evidence is the handed down stories that various ancient cultural groups have. The stories include the same elements as what is recorded in the Bible. The flood was worldwide, covered the highest mountains, there was a large boat, only a few people, and representative animals and creatures saved. The fourth line of evidence is what I call scientific evidence, that is, discoveries and conclusions that scientists have made. I believe that there has been a lot of exclusion and suppression of scientific articles in support of the actuality of the flood. The majority of scientists and editors of scientific journals are evolutionists 
and do not want included in their evolutionary publications anything that rocks their boat, so to speak. As a result, many of the findings by non-evolutionary scientists are suppressed and the information is not given very much public exposure. We need to be aware that not all science and not all scientists are squeaky clean. There are cover-ups, information that will support scientists' own personal ambitions and causes is most likely to become public. Take the issue of dating methods, for example. There are a number of dating methods commonly used. Probably the best known one is radiocarbon dating. When any sample of material, often rock, fossils, charcoal, wood or bone, is submitted for dating, the result is given as a range. Say, for example, a piece of rock might be given a range from 2,500 years to 435 million years. The published result of that particular dating will probably be given as the age of best fit, probably something like 350 million years, because other similar rocks have been given a similar age in the past. In reality, the rock may have only been 3,000 years old, but the scientists do not want to look silly in front of their fellow scientists. So a non-controversial age is given. It takes a very honest and a very brave scientist who's prepared to provide results that are at odds with the popular ideas pervading the scientific community. The last program in Give Me the Bible included some of those scientific evidences supporting the worldwide flood account given in the Bible. This week we will consider more scientific evidences to support the Bible's account of a worldwide flood in ancient times. As a reminder, you can read the account of the flood in the first book of the Bible in chapters 6, 7 and 8. So here goes. Firstly today, let us further consider fossils. Fossils are the petrified, that is turned to stone, remains of once living plants or creatures. But did you know fossils do not form when a living creature dies and sinks to the bottom of the sea or lake or river? It must be buried buried in a covering layer of mud or sand. The idea put forward by the evolutionists of a slow silting up of the seafloor just doesn't add up. It is extremely unlikely that a fossil could ever form in that way. A sea creature that dies and falls to the bottom of the sea is first attacked by scavengers, Normally its skeleton becomes broken up and scattered. But something like a sea snail with a hard shell, eventually through wave action, any action of the currents in the sea will be washed up onto or near the shore 
and will be ground up into powder. Much of the beach sand around the world is composed of the grit of seashells. Another interesting thing about fossils is that it is relatively common to find marine, that is sea-dwelling, fossils high up in mountainous areas. I personally have seen and found some of these in the Flinders Ranges on a steep hill near the western end of the Brackner Gorge. The hill is almost entirely composed of fossilised sea creatures. How did they get there? The most plausible answer is that they were buried there during the cataclysmic flood recorded in the Bible. And then something else. There is the phenomenon of what are known as polystrate fossils. What are polystrate fossils? They are usually petrified tree trunks and have been found in many places around the world. They are an anomaly to most evolutionary scientists and are one of those issues that does not conform to their theories. Just the existence of these polystrate fossils is powerful evidence supporting a worldwide flood and evidence that exposes the evolutionary interpretations of rock formation as false. You may be aware of what is known as the geologic column. That's a diagram where layers of rock below the Earth's surface have been given an age and a name. Some of those names are Cambrian, Devonian and Jurassic. The Jurassic layers are supposed to have been laid down somewhere between 210 and 140 million years ago. But these unusual fossils, these polystrate fossils, are of trees that penetrate through one or more layers of rock and through one or more geological layers. The word polystrate is a combination of the two words poly, meaning many, and strata, meaning layers. So, to give an example, the tree trunk fossil might have its base in a rock layer that's called Jurassic. Go right up through the Cretaceous layer and into the Tertiary layer. That would span a time period of probably over 100 million years. So how did it get there? If it grew, starting as a seedling at the Jurassic period of 200 million years ago, according to the uniformitist explanation, it would have to have grown underwater and been a very, very old tree. But trees don't live 100 million years and trees don't grow in the sea. Another point is that if the tree grew under the impossible conditions I've just described, the top of the tree would have rotted away long before the 100 million years were up. Another interesting thing about the fossilised trees is that they very rarely have any roots or branches. The explanation is much more plausible 
when explained according to what happens in a massive flood. As the water sweeps an uprooted tree along, the roots and branches are torn off. The bottom of the tree is heavier than the top. So some, although not all, of the trees float vertically, and it's usually in that same position when they get covered in mud and soil sediments. There are plenty of pictures available of polystrate fossil trees going through coal beds and different layers of rock, supposedly spanning hundreds of millions of years. We'll come back to polystrate fossils a little later. We'll have a little break now and we'll return shortly. Singing, Have Thine Own Way. 
before the break, I was talking to you about polystrate fossils. But now we'll have a look at something else. Another scientific evidence about the worldwide flood is fossilised footprints. Footprints of dinosaurs and even human prints have been found in many places. To leave such a footprint, the creature must have walked through mud, which later rapidly turned to stone. I personally have experienced mud quickly turning to stone. When I was a child, my parents owned property near the River Murray, about halfway between Manham and Swan Reach. Our property included river flats, swampy areas and plateau land. Near the swamp was a sort of little cove where there was wonderful sticky mud. I enjoyed playing in there where I'd sink down almost up to my knees. The sucking sound as I lifted my feet out of the mud was delightful for a little kid. Then came the 1955-56 Murray Flood. My play area was covered by about seven metres of water. Months later, after the waters returned to their normal level, I revisited my play area. It was still there, but to my surprise, the mud was now rock. No water, the water had not eroded the mud away, exposing bedrock. Everything was the same, except the mud had turned to rock over a few months. So those dinosaur footprints in a similar way were preserved when the mud hardened into rock. Now comes the curious thing about those footprints. They are pointing uphill. The direction of travel was to higher ground. The creatures were trying to escape the rising floodwaters. Yes, the evolutionary uniformatists recognise that these fossilised footprints exist, but they fail to mention that the footprints are pointing uphill. A further scientific evidence concerns coal. It's common belief that coal takes multi-millions of years to form. Yet I want to share with you an experiment that was conducted at the Argonne National Laboratory in the United States of America. The scientists took some ordinary wood chips and mixed them with some acidic clay and water and heated it for 28 days, that's around about a month, at 150 degrees Celsius in an airtight sealed tube. At the end of the experiment, they had high-grade black coal, and that took only 28 days to form. The researchers convincingly showed that coal does not need millions of years to form, unlike what we are led to believe and is given in students' textbooks. Given the right conditions, coal forms quite quickly, as may well have happened during the worldwide flood, where trees were ripped out of the ground, 
transported by the flowing water and deposited under mud and debris where they turn to coal. It's quite possible that the electricity that powers your home and perhaps the radio you're listening to was produced by coal which formed as a result of the flood which happened a mere 4,000 years ago. There are two more scientific evidences I'd like to share with you today. In various places around the world, things called erratics are to be found. An erratic is a large rock which is different to any of the nearby rocks and different to the ground on which it lays. It's of a different colour and the minerals of which it is made have no relationship to any neighbouring rocks or soil. The question is, how did erratics get there, when similar rock may only be found hundreds of kilometres away? Some erratics are huge, the size of a double-decker bus, and, of course, there are smaller ones as well. Glaciers are known to have moved large rocks, and deposit them where the ice melts. The build-up of glacial rock and debris is known as a moraine. In many areas where erratics occur, there is absolutely no evidence of any glaciers. The most logical answer is that these large rocks were moved from their original position to the new position by a large mass of fast-moving water, which, as you probably know, has a tremendous amount of force. The last piece of evidence we'll consider today that indicates that the world was once flooded, and as recorded in the Bible and the book of Genesis, is the layering of fossils. Uniformatists generally agree that the oldest rock is to be found in the deepest layers and the youngest in the layers nearest the surface. They also agree that the oldest fossils are to be found in the oldest layers, the deepest layers. But what do they say when they find, find old rock layers on top of young rocks and supposedly old fossils above young fossils? And that is the very situation in some places. There are serious questions and serious problems relating to the age of rocks. It is a misconception that the old rocks are to be found at the bottom. Laboratory experiments have shown that sand, gravel, silt and mud settles out in layers as it is moved and laid down by running water. The layers settle out according to size and density of the particles. This has been shown quite clearly with what happened following the explosion of Mount St Helens. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington, USA, erupted with a roar heard 300 kilometres away and with a force equal to 200 Hiroshima atom bombs. It threw out enough rock and ash 
to provide a ton for every person alive on planet Earth. There was a terrible blast of ash-filled superheated gas which went out towards the north. This wave of gas killed 61 people and destroyed millions of trees. After things settled down, there was an area of 157 square miles of forest destroyed, including trees up to three metres thick. Before the eruption, there was a 4.9 magnitude earthquake. This was probably the trigger for the eruption. The eruption blew approximately 400 metres off the top of the mountain, causing a massive landslide down the north face. Whereas before the eruption the mountain was almost a classic cone shape, after the catastrophe there was a huge crater one and a half kilometres wide and about four kilometres long and about 650 metres deep. The huge quantity of rock, ash and soil that slid down the north face of the mountain slid into Spirit Lake, causing a huge wave that sloshed from side to side as well as increasing the water level of the lake. Besides all that, a massive amount of snow and ice went into the lake also, increasing the water level and causing an overflow into the Tootle River. Water mixed with mud, ash, trees and rock hurtled down the river and debris built up at the sides of the river. When everything had settled down, scuba divers were sent in to investigate what was left of Spirit Lake. Besides logs floating horizontally on the surface of the lake, there were tree trunks that were floating vertically, that is, upright. Some had sunk down to the bottom, still in a vertical position. Downstream from the lake, observers noticed what had happened with the waterborne debris that had overflowed from the lake. They noticed distinct layers up to eight metres thick in the material deposited by the flow from the lake. The sand, mud, ash and rock had formed layers simply through the action of the powerful flow of water. Those layers have since turned to rock. Now all this happened in the space of a few hours, not millions of years. The vertical trees buried in the mud, mud will become polystrate fossils and the layers resulting from the debris flow down the Turtle River Valley are an example of what would have been laid down during the worldwide flood as described in the Bible. It seems to me that many people have swallowed without question the uniformitist idea of slow deposition of material over millions of years. This, of course, is in opposition to what the Bible has to say. There is powerful scientific evidence to support what the Bible says. Of course, 
There are those who don't take seriously the Bible account of the flood, but I do. For you see, the Bible is true. It can be trusted, and it shows the way to eternal life. We're not asked to believe what it says in a vacuum. There is scientific, astronomical, archaeological and many other branches of investigation that corroborate what the Bible says. Have you ever heard this saying? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Dear listeners, as for me, I stand for the Word of God. It is the one reliable guide in this world of confusion and trouble. And I hope you will choose to stand for and be guided by that precious book, the Bible, also. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to your company next week for another in the series, Give Me the Bible. Until then, I wish you joy and peace and God's blessings.